take everything, a wonderful refrain of the Christian heart. We want all of us to be given to the Lord. Well, this week was a little bit of a momentous week in the Laird household because Tim and Titus turned 16. Hard for dad to believe. I literally carried those two in one in each hand out of the hospital, and now they're over six feet tall. Uh, I don't know if they look up to me, but I'm definitely looking up to them at this point. You know, they are growing into young adulthood, and it's a time uh, for them to look forward to the chapters to come, and a little bit for mom and I to look back on 16 years of blessing. It's also for me a time as a dad, I'm looking back a little bit at what kind of an example I have been to them. You know, they did not get their height from me. They got that from their uh, grandfather on Katie's side. Uh, I talked about him a couple weeks ago, Brad. They get their height from him, not from me. But there's a lot of things that they are getting from me, for good or for bad. You know, when they were babies, they learned to talk by mimicking their mom and I. They learned to throw a ball by watching me and by trying to imitate what I did. Now they're learning how to drive. And uh, since I spent 15 years driving in Ukraine, I'm a little nervous about the example that they're seeing through me. It's not just physical things, though, like talking and throwing and driving that they will learn from me. They're learning how to treat women by watching how I treat their mother. They're learning attitudes towards money and possessions by watching my attitude towards money and possessions. They're learning a work ethic and a lifestyle by observing mine. For better or for worse, there will be two men walking this earth whose primary male role model and mentor was me. And I say for better or for worse because that reality is a sobering and humbling thought. You know, it would be wonderful if they only picked up the things I do right, if they only picked up my strengths. But the reality is, is that they will be influenced not only by what I do right, but what I do wrong, not only by my strengths, but by my weaknesses. And so I often pray that the Lord would change me and sanctify me. When I'm praying with my children, I often pray when I'm praying with them, Lord, make me a better father and a better example. And then I pray, Lord, help my children to learn from the things I'm doing right as I obey your word and to also learn from the things I'm doing wrong when I disobey your word. You know, there's a scripture verse that says, test all things, hold on to the good. And I pray that they'll do that as they observe my life, that they'll test all things by the scriptures and then hold on to what is good. I pray they'll see me changing. I pray they'll uh, see me asking forgiveness of the Lord and other people when I do wrong. I pray that they'll see the grace of God in my life, that God's grace is greater than my sin, but also that grace has a transforming effect. The scripture says that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously and in a godly way in this present world. So I pray they'll see the grace of God doing both of those things in my life. I think my dream for them is that their spiritual stature will exceed mine the way their physical stature has already exceeded mine. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the next generation was stronger spiritually than the former one? I'm praying for spiritual progress in the next generation and praying against spiritual regression. I'm praying that my children and my children's children will be more effective in ministry than the generations which preceded them. You know, I really don't care if our family's economic status increases or decreases in the generations to come, but I do care about the spiritual condition of the following generations. As a church, I think we should have the desire that the generations that follow us would exceed us, that they would exceed us in holiness, that they would exceed us in evangelism, that they would exceed us in fervent worship of the Lord and in their impact on this world. I'm praying that 
the generations that are now in the nursery and in our children's classrooms, our children and our teenagers, our young adults will be the revival generations that this country has needed for so long. I think sometimes churches look back on some sort of a golden era in the past instead of striving to create a golden era in the future. I believe God can do mighty things through the generations that are coming, and my call to them ever since I have arrived here has been, rise up, young people, we need you. Now, in order for the next generations to be the powerful spiritual force, I believe they can be, we're going to have to train and equip them. I don't think I need to tell you this, but there is an intense spiritual battle raging out there. And our children will not be in here all their lives. They will be out there. The question is, will they stand? And not only stand, but will they rescue the perishing? There is an intense spiritual battle raging. And so a peacetime, R&R loving, lethargic and out of shape army simply will not do. It simply will not do because ill-trained and ill-equipped young soldiers will get chewed up by the powerful ideologies, deceptions, delusions, and destructions and deconstructions of our age. To stand, they must be trained. So what is the need of the hour? The need of the hour is for the church to begin training and equipping elite spiritual soldiers who armed with truth and love can not only withstand the attacks of the evil one, but can go out and boldly proclaim and defend the gospel of Christ to defend it and display it and proclaim it so that they can rescue many souls through their lives and testimonies. The need of the hour is for the church to urgently train our members and especially our young people to a special forces level of spiritual readiness and spiritual fitness and gospel ability and evangelistic skill and apologetic wherewithal. The need of the hour is for practical training. And practical training is the kind you can only get by a combination of systematic instruction and life-on-life mentoring and discipleship. That's why our final core value, core value number seven, is practical training, practical training. We desire that practical training will be a core value of the church, that those who attend here, especially our young people, will be thoroughly equipped for every good work, as 2 Timothy 3 says. And that is our role as spiritual leaders of the church, is to equip God's people for works of service. And so practical training is a core value. The elders have articulated this core value as follows, quote, Jesus devoted most of his ministry to mentoring his disciples. And the apostles also emphasized the importance of practical training. They emphasized hearing the word, seeing how mature believers apply it in their daily lives and ministries, and then doing the same. Using a hearing, seeing, doing model of mentoring We emphasize intentional and practical training for every church member in all areas of the Christian life. Now, the reason why this core value, practical training, must be a truly core value of the church is because it was clearly a priority for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are his followers, and he is the head of the church. Practical training was clearly a priority of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Yes, it is true that Jesus spent some of his time teaching the crowds, but he spent most of his time training the twelve. That's what he spent most of his time on, training the twelve. And of the time he spent even with the twelve, he spent the majority of that time with three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And of the time he spent with those three, he spent even more time with just one disciple, Peter. Jesus 
focus on training a few men thoroughly rather than training many men partially. In other words, he clearly chose quality over quantity. The Lord's will and intention and strategy was for the good news of the gospel to spread over the whole world as rapidly as possible. And so what did he do? Did he focus on the crowds? No, he focused on training 12, training the 12. In a recent pastor's meeting, we were talking about how difficult it is to get people to come to services where the focus is on evangelism and prayer. And we, we understand that. You know, every time where I have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, I never want to beforehand. But afterwards, there's this great joy and this great privilege and blessing. Whenever there's an opportunity to go and to share the gospel, it's difficult because we are sent like sheep among wolves. That's not very pleasant. Hey, sheep, go out among the wolves. Nobody wants to do that. But when we do, we go with the Lord's blessing and with the Lord's protection, and there is the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment in being an ambassador of the kingdom to plead with people to repent and believe the good news, to be reconciled to God so that the nations, as we talked about last week, can know the joy of salvation. But it's hard to get people to come to services where training and evangelism is the focus or where prayer is the focus. Look around the United States and you will find that prayer meetings are the most poorly attended meetings of the church. Why is that? Because when you pray, you are committing to obey. So it's easier not to say anything to the Lord lest he hold you to your word. It's difficult to get people to come to services where the focus is on evangelism and prayer because that requires giving so much of ourselves. But as we sung, our heart's desire should be, Lord, take everything. I hold nothing back. You know, as a church, we've decided to focus our Sunday evening services on evangelistic training and prayer. That's not a good strategy if the goal is numbers. As I said, offer evangelistic training and you'll have fewer people come. Focus on prayer, even fewer. It's not a good strategy if our goal is numbers. But if our goal is to prioritize what Scripture commands us to prioritize, then it is not only a good strategy, it is a required strategy. We can say all day long that humble prayer is a core value, that local outreach is a core value, and that practical training is a core value of the church. But if those things don't even make it onto our schedule in the three main gatherings of the church, which is Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening, if they're not even in our schedule, then we're just flapping our lips when we say we prioritize prayer and that we prioritize local outreach, and that we prioritize practical training. So we've decided that we'd rather have smaller numbers earnestly praying for the lost and being equipped in evangelism on Sunday nights than to get larger numbers at the high cost of neglecting those biblical priorities. And as Jesus' strategy of focusing on training the 12 shows the smaller numbers initially lead to larger numbers down the road. Jesus trained the 12. Then the apostles trained faithful men, and then those faithful men trained others. And there was multiplication which occurred so that the gospel spread over all the nations within a rapidly very short period of time. You know, back in the 60s, the majority of churches in America decided to abandon that strategy and replace it with another, an attractional model. The goal was numbers. Success was measured by how many people you could get to every event. And the leaders noticed that 
evangelistic training and apologetics training didn't draw the numbers. Prayer meetings certainly didn't draw the numbers. So let's do away with those and do things that draw the numbers. And this had a huge appearance of success because they got the numbers. And people could look around and see success in front of their eyes. But what has happened as that strategy has been implemented over the last couple decades, we see a massive numerical decline in churches in America over the last several decades. In other words, initial success has led to long-term failure. The strategy that Jesus modeled for us is slower. It has smaller initial results, but much more effective in the long term. The strategy of providing practical training starts with fewer but ends with more. It's a slower strategy, but over time, it is the most effective strategy. And most importantly, it is a biblical strategy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the strategy of mentoring, of entrusting to faithful people who will be able to then entrust these things to others also and therefore multiply the effect. Both the personal example of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching of the apostles clearly tells us that we need to pursue a strategy of multiplication by mentoring. Multiplication by mentoring. That is the path forward. That is the way to achieve an effective result. The question is, though, how are we to mentor and disciple? How can we provide practical training to our members? And there is, of course, no one right way to do that. Different local churches and at different times in the history of those local churches, this can be done in different ways. But there is a process and a pattern taught in Scripture that we can follow in order to do this. And you've heard me talk about before what I call a hearing, seeing, doing approach to practical training. I want to return to a key text which lays out these principles in a really insightful way, and that is Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. This really is the key verse for our core value of practical training. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Philippi. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is a process followed by a promise. Here's a process, and if you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. A process followed by a promise. Well, what is the process laid out here? Well, he says, the things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So there's five key terms Learning, receiving, hearing, seeing, and practicing or doing. Let's look a little more closely at what is written here. First, he says, the things which you have learned. This is amathete. It means to study, to learn, including reflection on the information, with the result of understanding. This is not just fact gleaning. This is internalization of truth. This is, this is taking something past your ears and deep into your heart and into your mind. It's understanding it and internalizing it through deep reflection and contemplation. It is to learn. The next he says, the things you have learned and received. Received is parlabite. It means to accept the presence, listen to this, of a person 
with friendliness. It means to welcome, to receive, to accept, or to have as a guest someone. So notice what Paul is saying here. The things you have learned and received in me, he says. This is the power of a personal example. He says you need to receive the things you've heard and seen in me. So this word receive has more to do with accepting the teacher than just accepting the content of his teaching. You can receive information from someone while rejecting them. But what Paul is saying is you need to receive not only the content of my teaching, but the pattern of life I showed you. This is the same thing that Jesus calls us to. He calls us not only to accept the content of his teaching or the information, but his way of life, his manner of living, to talk as he talked, to walk as he walked, to serve as he served. We must receive the teacher and his teaching. Interestingly enough, this same word received, paralabite, is found in John chapter 1, verse 11, where it says that Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Paul's saying, don't, don't be like that. Don't be like those who rejected Jesus. He says instead, as an apostle, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. The things which you've learned and received in me, practice these things and the God of truth will be with you. So he's saying, follow my example. Then he says, the things which you've learned, received, and heard. Heard is ekusate. It means to pay attention to, to listen to, and to respond. This is not just having sound waves pass over your eardrums. This is listening with attention. We said in previous weeks that expository preaching is a core value. Well, expository preaching only has as much value as you, the listener, can glean from it. I could stand up here and talk all day and your life group leader can teach and your Bible study leaders can, can teach. But if you are not listening, I mean really hearing, it will have no effect. Pay attention. Listen well and respond. Dr. Lutzer exhorted us in his humorous and pointed way last week to that, didn't he? Take notes, he says. Why? He's emphasizing you have to listen. You have to attend. There are, of course, different learning styles. I don't always take notes. I sometimes do. But the point he was making is expository preaching can't have its effect unless there is expository listening. Here. Here the things you've learned and received and heard, and then he says, and seen in me. This is edite. It means to watch or to observe. The things which you've observed in me, in my life, do these things, Paul says. Wouldn't that be wonderful to be able to say to someone else, hey, watch my life closely and then do what you see me doing and the God of peace will be with you. Or as Paul said elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. This is why it's so important. The mentoring process begins with the mentor. His words and his life have to match. Or as an old preacher told young preachers, be careful lest you unsay with your life what you have said with your words. What you have seen in me, Paul says, do this, and you'll be walking with the God of peace. Well, you've learned, you've received, you've heard and seen. Then he says, these things practice. What's interesting is learned, received, heard, and seen are all aorist tense. These are things, he says, look, you have learned from me. You have Received, you have heard, and you have seen. So now, switching to the present tense, be practicing these things. Now apply it. Go do it. Don't be just a hearer of the word. Be a doer. Practices, prosite, it means to carry out some activity with a focus on the procedures involved. 
Paul's saying, look, follow the pattern. I showed you a pattern of life, how to walk with Christ. You watched it, now imitate it. Follow that pattern. Follow that process. This is the application. This is the imitation of a life. You know, you buy something from Ikea, you know, and to put it together and make it functional, you have to do what? You have to follow the instructions. And of course, since it's Ikea, you give up halfway through and start to improvise, and that doesn't work either. So then you go back and you know, get a Scandinavian dictionary or something and try to figure it out. Obviously, the clarity of the mentor and the clear pattern of his life is vitally important, but we must observe and then follow the pattern of those who walk with God. Well, if we put those five terms together, we see a five-step mentoring and discipleship process, don't we? We see that we are to learn, to receive, to hear, to see, and then to practice. It begins with learning because you can't apply what you don't know. So you have to be a student. You have to be a learner. You have to be a disciple. And then you have to receive it because you can't apply what you don't believe, what you reject or what you hold at arm's length. You have to receive it. So you need to choose your mentors carefully and then you need to be a Berean who is discerning but eager to be taught. Sometimes when we talk about being a Berean, we're, we, we focus just on the discernment. Oh, they were discerning. Yes, they were discerning. But it also says they were eager. They were eager to learn. Yes, they were discerning because they wanted to make sure they were learning the right things. But they were eager to learn. You have to receive it. Then third, you have to hear it. You can't apply what you don't even attend. So you've got to show up. You got to show up to the evangelistic training. You got to show up to the training in in uh, biblical counseling. You have to show up to training in personal discipleship. You have to show up and you have to attend and then you have to pay attention. You have to really hear. But then there's a key step which is often neglected. You have to see. You have to see it done. You can't apply what you don't observe. It's a little bit like trying to drive, learn how to drive just by reading the driver's ed manual. If you've never even seen anyone operate a car, it will be difficult. You can't apply what you don't observe. Christian living must first be taught by instruction and then caught by example. It's first taught, then caught. So you need to observe the lives of mature believers and then follow their example. And then fifth, you need to practice all of those things. You can't apply what you don't prioritize. You have to actually obey to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. So that is the Pauline process for practical training. Learn, receive, hear, see, and practice. And notice that Paul here teaches an approach to practical training that cannot be accomplished by passively attending church services. He does not say the things you have heard me teach, do, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the flaw in the strategy of many churches of our day. We teach or preach, and then it's up to you. Go and do. You've heard, so do. Hearing and doing, that's our model. We hear and we do, we're supposed to do. There is a missing element here, and that is seeing He says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You know why sometimes the churches can be weak and anemic? Because there's no living examples of the truths that are being taught. This is why the instruction of the church is not something that we should view as a church that I do or that the life group leader does. This is something that we do. So there are people who have the gift of teaching, so they teach. But we need dozens that have the gift of modeling and mentoring. If you 
are one who knows how to do something. You need to mentor and model. One of the most frustrating things for a preacher is I can teach all I want, but without living examples in the congregation, without a mentor who puts his arm around a younger person and says, let me show you how to do what the pastor was talking about, there will be little effect. The church has power in practical training when instruction which happens in the larger group, is paired with discipleship and mentoring, which can only happen in a small group. Paul's method and process for training involved more than just getting people to sit and listen. It involved getting them to hear his teaching, yes, but also then to observe his personal example and then to do what he both taught and modeled. So when Paul was training people in the school of Tyrannus, he would lecture and then he would go out to the markets and preach. And he always had his Timothy and his Titus and his other young men with him. And they learned by hearing the teaching and then by watching him do what he just taught. In American churches, I think we've lost that emphasis on personal mentoring through the power of a living example. We tend to think that the job is done if people have come and heard the sermon. The job's not even halfway done. We're just starting. Hearing the word is only the beginning. People have to learn it and receive it and hear it and see it, and then they will do it. If the process stops at hearing, something terrible actually happens. Did you know that preaching is dangerous? Uh, It's dangerous to the devil if people actually apply it, but it's dangerous to the hearer if it stops with hearing. What does James say? Don't be merely a hearer of the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Some people think they're good Christians because they sat in a pew and heard God's word. You know, uh, sitting there and listening to sound waves come through the air, is a good and important thing, but if it ends there, you walk out of here with self-deception. Don't be merely a hearer of the word who deceives himself Do what it says. So you have to move from hearing to doing. You have to move from hearing to doing. Hearing the word without obeying it is spiritually dangerous. So it's vital that we not only teach people what to do, but that we show them how to do it. We often do a disservice to people because every week they come and hear sermons about what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do, and they don't know how to do it. Be a good husband, we say. Well, they came from a broken home. They have no idea what being a good husband looks like. Help, help and encourage comfort the hurting They walk out of saying, I'd love to comfort the hurting. I have no idea how to do that. Well, what do they need? They need someone who knows how to do that to take them along so that they can see it done. And once they combine the hearing with the seeing, the principle with the practice, then they will catch it and do it. Practical training is necessary. This is a reality that every father and mother knows Your children learn partially by your teaching, but hugely by your example. My sons can learn the rules of the road through the textbook, but they need hands-on instruction if they are to drive safely. Likewise, our young people are newer believers and all of us. We can learn the rules of God's road from listening to sermons, but we still need mentors who will show us how to actually apply the word And so it is vital that we combine hearing with seeing, and that will lead to doing. I want to point out something in the context of Philippians 4.9. This wasn't the first time in this passage that he's talked about the importance of seeing an example, a living example. Go back to chapter 3, verse 17. 
Paul, in context, has been teaching. They've been hearing his teaching. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is teaching. This is instruction. They've just been hearing him teach doctrine. And now listen to what he says in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Follow my example. Observe those who follow that example. When Paul says, join in following my example, he uses a Greek verbal construction which very woodenly translated would, would read something like this. Become a co-imitator of me. In other words, he's saying that others have already become imitators of him. And now he's urging the Philippians to join in with the others who are already following his example. He's saying, look, there's maybe Timothy or Titus. Here are those who are following my example. Now you join in with them. Join that group which is following the apostolic example. This is great advice for young people. Find other young people who are following godly mentors and ask if you can join them. Can I come? Can I go with you? Become a co-imitator of me, Paul says. This is important because when Paul writes this letter, he's not personally present in Philippi, right? In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, he hadn't seen them in a while, long to see them, wasn't able to, but in Paul's absence, his apostolic example could still be learned. How can you learn Paul's apostolic example when he's not present? How can we learn and follow Paul's apostolic example? By observing those who are following that example. He says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul set the pattern. There were those who followed that pattern. Now you join in with them and follow that example. This is multiplication by mentoring. Paul had mentored faithful men who could now mentor others. He had shown a group of people how to walk the Christian life, and now others could learn from them. You could observe those who walk according to the pattern. And in that word observe, we see a key often missing ingredient of biblical discipleship. It's seeing or watching the personal example of a godly mentor. The word here is scopeite, which means to exert effort in continually acquiring information. He says, observe those. Put forth continual effort to watch and observe and absorb and learn from those who are walking according to the apostolic pattern. Observe them. Imitate them. In other words, to get really practical, find a man of prayer and watch him closely. Find someone who loves the lost, observe him, and then imitate him or her. Recently, I met with the three guys on staff who are taking seminary classes, Ryan, Santiago, and Austin, and one of the things I encourage them to do during seminary is to study godly men, not just the subjects they teach. Observe the man, not just the material. I shared with them that I'm grateful for the information I learned in seminary, but what impacted me the most for life were the godly examples of my professors. Even all these years later, as you've heard me mention, I want to be a kind, humble, and loving man of prayer like Dr. Roskup was. I want to preach with the passion of a Dr. Montoya. I want biblical doctrine to fill my heart with awe and worship like I saw in Dr. Trevor Cragen. I want the biblical truth to impact my practical life and my marriage and my thinking and my emotions the way I saw in the life of Dr. Stuart Scott. 
I'm grateful for mentors, those who walked according to the pattern, and I just tried to join in with them. Find them, join them, watch them, follow them. When my dad was in his early 20s, the Lord called him to be a church planner, and he had a Bible college education, so he knew biblical doctrine, but he didn't know how to church plant. So what did he do? He researched and found one of the most experienced church planters. And he called this guy up and said, would you mentor me? And the guy's like, you know, I'm sorry, but I, like, I'm already mentoring a bunch of guys. There, I, there's no way I could say yes to mentoring you. If you've met my dad, he's a very persistent fellow. So guess what he said? He said, what if I came and helped you do your yard work every week? It, it wouldn't be additional time for you. In fact, maybe it could save you a little time. And if I could just get 15 minutes with you, I'll do an hour of work. And that's what he did. Went and helped this guy mow the lawn, rake up leaves. And while they were raking, this guy taught my dad how to church plant. Find godly mentors. Figure out how to get close enough to observe them. Hear, see, and then do. Seeing is the bridge between hearing and and doing. And that's why we're working on offering not only growth groups as we do currently, but also go groups and care groups, which will provide a context for mentoring and discipleship. You'll be hearing more about that from Pastor Jeremy on the 28th and more in the weeks and months to come. We are committed to implementing a hearing, seeing, doing approach to discipleship and equipping because we realize how urgent it is to equip God's people for works of service. The days are dark. The light must shine bright. Lord, help us to hear, to see, and to do. Lord, to walk in your ways and in accordance with your truth. Lord, we come now to your table, to communion, where we remember your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And Lord, we realize that the basic definition of a Christian is one who follows you. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear, to see, and to do, so that we may walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, please come and serve the bread.
in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says in verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And this is the chapter where he goes on to write, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we have received the bread and we have done this in remembrance of you. Remembering that it was your death for sin that paid the penalty for my sin, for the sins of all who believe. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that your atonement fully covered the guilt of our sin fully took away its penalty. Lord, your resurrection broke its power and gave us life. And so we remember the great gift of love we were given. And we recommit ourselves to walking in that love and to sharing it with others. So we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, come and serve the God. our soul, our life, our all. 
Paul, who called us to be imitators of him as he also was an imitator of Christ, continues in chapter 11 to say, in the same way he took this cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we take the cup and we proclaim the Lord's death, remembering that he is coming again soon and that until then we have a job to do. So we need men and women who will mentor the young. We ourselves must be mentored and we must learn to practice those things which the Lord modeled for us that the apostles taught us so that we could be faithful examples until he comes. As we partake of the cup, let us recommit ourselves to that. Let's partake together. Lord, we thank you for the cup which reminds us of your shed blood. Lord, your word says that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So how grateful we are that you shed your blood you died on that cross so that we could be saved. So, Lord, take our soul, our life, our all. Lord, help us to observe those who walk according to your ways and to follow their example. Lord, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, so, Lord, help us to follow their example, to be imitators of them as they have imitated Christ. Lord, take us forth from this place with a renewed resolve to hear, to see, and to do, that you may be glorified through our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.